Hey, Essential Church podcast listeners, Andrew here. I know this is odd. We normally uh, roll our seasons in the fall and in the spring, and then here we are now kind of in the middle of the summer uh, throwing special episodes out at you. I hope if you haven't yet that you caught uh, part one and part two of our conversation with and about N.T. Wright's work, some of the stuff that he's been doing, dealing with the pandemic and all of that. Glenn Packham did a fabulous interview with him. And then we followed it up with a conversation between myself and Glenn and Daniel and Jason Jackson. It was just fabulous. So catch up with that. We have one more special episode to bring to you this summer. And this one is just an incredibly important conversation. By now, all of us are aware of the murder of George Floyd on uh, May 25th. And all of the outrage and the emotion and the feeling that that sparked, it really brought to the surface old wounds in our country that have not been healed. And we believe that this is a moment when the Spirit now is speaking to the church in a very fresh way. And so a couple Sundays ago, Pastor Brady, as a gesture of wanting to lead the way on this, we really believe that the church should be leading the way on this conversation about racial reconciliation. Pastor Brady had two African-American families from our church join him on the stage for the Sunday morning uh, service. He interviewed both of them. And I'm telling you, we knew that the conversation was going to be a special conversation, a time just of listening and entering into really sacred and tender space with each other, I think none of us really anticipated how much we were going to find ourselves on holy ground. It was a beautiful service, and we just thought we need to share this with our Essential Church podcast community. So here's the conversation. What you're really listening to is the service that we had a couple weekends ago, and we're offering this to you uh, both as an encouragement to you and also as a potential model for you as you seek to move forward in your own context, in your own space, in your own congregation we're trusting that you'll listen to the Spirit as well and that God will get the glory in this country, that the divisions between us will be healed, that the walls will fall down, and that that beautiful, beloved community that Martin Luther King Jr. spoke of many years ago will emerge. Without further ado, here's the podcast. We're going to uh, violate some social distancing rules, I can tell you that already. Good to see you guys. Welcome. I want to uh, tell you about these two couples. Ken and Tracy uh, have been at New Life for many years. Ken, uh, if I were to give uh, an award for most effective volunteer in our church, it's Ken Harmon. This guy serves all over the church. And his wife, Tracy, they are, uh, they are foster parents. They have a, a daughter of their own. They're also involved in our foster system. In fact, they just got two children in your, in your home recently, a three and a four-year-old from the foster system. These are godly people. I love them so much. They're full of zeal, full of the Holy Spirit, full of God, and they're new lifers. I want you to know, these couples are not from the outside. I didn't have to go find people to come. These are people that sit with you every Sunday, have raised their children in this church alongside you. They serve with all of their heart, soul, and mind. These are, this is our family. This is our, the picture of our family. This is Sheldon and Selena Duffy. I love you so much. You know how much I love you. you three, they have three boys. Uh, Sheldon uh, retired from the Army after 28 years as a right? Army man. So he uh, retired as a chief warrant officer. And now, listen to this. You're, you're going to love this. He's now a sixth grade teacher in District 11. <laughs> I love that. He, you deal with sixth graders every single day. That was more difficult than anything you ever did in the Army. Amen to that. Amen. <laughs> So we need to pray for our school teachers. And Selena 
has served all over the church, has been on our staff at one point, has served and still serves in women's ministry all over the church. This is, these are, uh, both these couples love you and love this church. And I'm so uh, excited today to hear part of your story. There's the microphones that you can use right there. Grab those if you want. And I want to start today with a, with, I want to start with you guys, Selena and Sheldon. I want you to share with us your story a bit. Give us a, a snapshot of, of how in your life you have experienced prejudice and racism in your life growing up. You grew up in Watts in LA. He grew up in California in the Watts neighborhood. Selena grew up in Georgia. Is that right? Jersey. Yeah. Jersey oh, Jersey City. Yeah, but you were in the military in Georgia, right. Jersey City and Watts. Tell us your story real quick, and we'd love to hear it. Well, just starting off, being African-American is experience racism and not always be able to identify what it is. But the first time I experienced racism, I knew without a doubt it was racism, was shortly after I finished basic training in the Army. I came home, and I went to a popular club in L.A., and I had went to that club before with two of my cousins who were also African-American, and we were denied entry because they said we were wearing pleated pants, which is kind of strange at the time, most fashionable pants were pleated. <laughs> so we went back to the, so I went back to the club by myself after graduating basic training, and I got there early. And I was wearing a sweater, still pleated pants, Italian loafers with no socks. Anybody remember Miami Vice? That's how you wore your... So I get to the club, oh, there are white guys who are dressed just like me, sweater, pleated pants, Italian loafers, no problem, I'm getting in the club this time. So I go ahead and I get up to the guy who's checking IDs and he says, you're looking mighty angry this evening. I said, what are you talking about? He said, you've just been denied entry into the club, you cannot remain on the premises. If you remain on the premises, the police will be called, and I'm just standing there. And I felt a pain deep inside my gut. Because for the first time in my life, it had happened before, but I had been able to explain it away. I knew I'm not being denied entry. He couldn't say anything about the clothes because there were white guys dressed the same way. He just said, I look mad. I look angry. I said, I'm being denied entry into this club because I'm black. And that pain sat there for a minute and it went inside me and it twisted and it came up as anger. And if anyone knows me, I'm a nonviolent person, but that person who denied the entry to the club, I wanted to get in my car and run that guy over. That's how angry I felt that this was happening to me in America, LA, 1988. I'm a soldier, I graduated basic training. I'm gonna serve my country and I'm being denied entry into a club in LA. And I was disappointed, fighting back tears, walking back to my car, but then guess what? Even though I was going to a club, I was saved, okay? Um, and what happened was, as I was walking to my car, some white guy said, hey, this tall white guy. He said, did you go to Monroe High? I said, yeah, I went to Monroe High, I was busted out to the valley. And we started talking, he said, what happened? And I explained to him what happened. He said, hey man, come in the club with me. I said, you know what? I don't even want to go in there now, but thank you. But I thank God that the Lord showed up and showed me despite the way I was treated by that guy who denied me entry into that club, he showed me all white people aren't like that. So I'm so glad that the Lord showed up so quickly to show me a different story. Mm. Thank you. That's beautiful. 
Well, as we said earlier, I'm from Jersey City, New Jersey, and um, I've experienced racism in different ways, just being in the big city and just uh, living in a segregated way, even though we say up north that we are uh, a very diverse group of people, but we're yet still separated. But my first real physical experience that I experienced was actually when I went to live in Fort Bend in Georgia <clears throat> as a soldier. Um, I, I, I don't know if some of you might know this word that I'm about to use, but um, it was in 1990, I think three at the time. I got my first little car. It was a little Nissan Sentra. <laughs> it was a little box one, no aerodynamics at all. And um, I'm all ready to soup it up. If you know what soup up means, you mean I'm about to deck this car out and make it mine. And if most of you know me, it's gonna be mine. <laughs> so I go to this little mall, and I may have even had a uniform on, I don't know, but I went looking for uh, customized license plates. And I found this little kiosk, and it had all these license plates, and they had Italian princess, they had um, Irish princess, and finally I saw they had black princess. So I'm thinking, oh, I'm going to grab the black princess because I'm not Irish and I'm not Italian. So I go, I'm so proud that I find something that identifies with me, and so I go put it on my car, I'm all excited. And I'm on a military installation at the time. I'm on Fort Benning, Georgia. One morning I get up to drive to PT um, to do what I'm required, and I look down at my license plate, and it's spray painted out, spray painted out. And I sat there, and it threw me back, and I'm thinking, not, not here, no, not here. You know, I'm in the military, I'm serving, I'm, I, why would someone do this to me? And I called the authorities. Of course, I'm going to report and I'm going to tell them about it. And the thing that was said to me was, why did you put it on your car? Why did you do that? Like, it was an offense to say that I was a black princess. And I know that may even disturb some people when, I, when you may even see that. When I see every St. Patrick's Day where it says, I'm Irish and I'm proud. I'm Italian and I'm proud. But once you say you're black and you're proud, it's looked at totally different. And I just remember just being taken back. And at that moment, you still don't want to believe it. And then when you called someone to help, they said, why did you do that? And that was my experience that I will always remember. But it was a time where I, I just realized that, you know, this is what I was living in. So that was my first real one. I'm so sorry. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. I, this is uh, Ken and Tracy Harmon. Ken, Ken grew up in Michigan, is that right? Are you Michigan? Michigan, is, right. tell, us, tell us about you, your story and what you've experienced growing up and as, as a young man and tell us your story. Um, my story was, is, has a similar background to most of you. You know, if you're you're raised in um, a predominantly white neighborhood, then sometimes racism becomes, um, it's not a thing. You at least you don't think it's a thing. Um, well, I was raised in a predominantly black neighborhood. Let me not say predominantly, it was all black, okay? <laughs> <laughs> it was, except for a couple of uh, poor uh, white people, but it was, it was all black. It's a city called Ben Harbor, 
Ben Arbor actually has had two major riots, one in 96 and one in 2006. And the riot in 2006 was uh, because of a, a cop shot an unarmed teenager. Um, but my situation was I didn't experience racism because to me that was just life. You, you experience things from police, but that was normal. It wasn't abnormal. And um, like it was, it would be 10 of us walking down the street as teenagers and we see a cop, we just start running. I mean, we just, it was normal and we would laugh about it or whatever, um, but it was normal. I didn't really experience, so I went into the military afterwards and um, got out of the military, spent eight years in the uh, army. Who? Okay, all right. And um, so I didn't really experience racism, at least at the heart level, uh, Pastor, until I hired in um, as a postal clerk in a small town outside of Lansing, Michigan. And I was the first black ever hired into that post office. Um, and it was, I, you know, I even asked the postmaster, why did you hire me? And he said, because we need change. And I was like, okay. So in my mind, I'm like, 57 cent, you know, change. Okay, anyway, <laughs> all right. <laughs> but, um, gotta work on my timing. Anyway, so, um, my job was to open the post office, clear the, the bay, and set the mail up for the carriers that came in. Well, I, was come, I drove in one day, and, um, and I noticed the, the police car following me, but I didn't pay much attention to it. So I pulled into the post office where I normally had parked. I'd only been there about a week. And, um, and uh, he all of a sudden, he sh he was, it was about 4 in the morning, so he, his lights were shining on me, and I was like, what's going on? And he said, where are you going? And I said, I'm opening the post office. And I showed him the key. And I said, why are you stopping me? And he said, um, well, we, there's been robberies in this area, and you fit the description. And I was like, OK. Well, I said, if you want to come up, I can open the post office door. And in my mind, I'm thinking, get in. <laughs> get in. Because <laughs> it was just me and this person out there. And so. Um, he said, okay, open the door. So I opened the door, and he, he said, okay, come on back out. And I sat on the seat, uh, the, side, um, the steps for a few minutes. And he said, okay, you can go in, but just know that there, somebody looks just like you has been robbing this place. And I said, okay. So I told the postmaster, he was angry. Um, but what really angered me wasn't that situation. It was that it happened two other times within a year. And it would be, the, the city was only like this big, so it would be the same officers um, two other times. And that was the first time I ever felt in my heart what it meant to be really different. I mean, I, I, I've experienced it where people look at you differently. That's not the issue. But for me, I, it's, it's stung. Because I, in my mind, I just got out of the military. I'm, I'm working a job. I was going to college. And it didn't matter. I was black, and I fit a description. Mm. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. Thank you. Tracy, so good to have you today, by the way. Thank you. So I'll just take you through my experiences over the years. My first experience with racism was when I was 16 years old, happy to have my first job. Any parent in this room knows how big of a deal that is and how exciting it is. I get this job. I'm a cashier at a grocery store. Imagine being 16 years old, ringing up a customer, 
taking their money, putting it into the register, and going to hand them change at 16, and they tell you, put it on the counter. They don't want to take it from my hand. Other customers in that same store won't come to my lane. Even if my lane is empty, they rather wait than have a 16-year-old child ring up their groceries. When I was in college, my roommate, my freshman year, said to me, and it was, she wasn't, um, I don't think she was attempting to be racist. She was asking a legitimate question. Can I refer to basketball as the N-word ball? I went to a Big Ten university. My next door neighbor in the dorm asked me if she could call me Moesha. There's a TV show at the time. Uh, the main character was Brandy, and the name of the show was Moesha. All black people look alike. I want to call you Moesha. Mm -hmm. As you can imagine, freshman year was pretty interesting. As I get on later in life, um, I become a mom. When my daughter was in second grade, so seven, eight years old, she came home from school to tell me that as they were sitting on the floor in the hallway, waiting to go into the bathroom, another student, second grade, sitting on the floor next to her, told her she cannot play with the N-word, mm. my second grader. Mm. As an adult, two, maybe three months ago, we were driving back from Utah. We're driving down the highway. <laughs> he was driving. Police car um, turns on their lights. My heart starts to race. Mm. My hands are sweating. My mouth is dry. I'm trying to think, what do you do? What do you do? Okay, I need to get my cell phone out because I need to record this. I need to get the license and the registration out before they pull up because I can't be reaching for anything. Lord, please don't let my husband die in this car at the steering wheel with my daughter sitting in the back seat. And I'm confident that not many people in this room have had to think that. What I need you guys to know is that I know that I am black every moment of every day. When you are not black, you don't have to think about that. When I walk into this room in this church and I don't see people that look like me or very few people that look like me, I know I'm black. When I walk into a business meeting and people have said to me, after talking to me on the phone, but meeting me in person the first time, I didn't know you were black. I'm aware that I'm black. When my daughter goes to uh, swim lessons and she's the only black kid, when she goes to Girl Scouts and she's the only black kid, when she goes to uh, a student program at church and she's the only black kid, we have to think about our race. 
And you guys don't know how often that is in the grocery store, at the doctor's office, in the lobby, when the police are behind you. We know we're black. Yeah, thank you. Um, my, my master's and bachelor's was in, is in sociology, and the actual title of my master's was Structural Inequality and Race Relations. And um, I remember in the class, in, at the grad level in the Big Ten, you, you debate a lot on everything. <laughs> and I remember um, telling them a story about my first time in Korea. And it was in the mid-80s. Okay, I'm dating myself. <laughs> it was 2004. No, it was in the mid-80s. <laughs> And, um, and something unique happened for me. Because uh, I, I, in Korea, one of the things I, I, liked to, I, I liked to do at the time was I would go into the deep parts of Korea, the villes, where it wasn't tourists. It was like they, a lot of these people, we would call these rural, very rural rice towns. And I remember uh, one particular town, I, I got a picture of it actually, where all these Koreans were coming up to me and they were just, and I didn't know what to do, and it was three of us, uh, four of us, uh, of one, was, one other person was Asian, other per, one person was white, two of us was black, but they were all coming up, to, and the other black person was a female, but they were all coming up to me, literally surrounding me, and like touching my face and, and all of this, and I immediately thought they'd never seen a black person before, because race is, we, it's called race conscious, we're aware of it all the time. What I eventually, learned was that they were coming up to me and touching me because I was American. And so something switched in me when I realized, they, I mean, they were taking photos. You remember the little throwaway cameras? Everybody carried them, those the original selfies. But anyway, so they were just like hugging me and taking pictures and willing to buy me stuff in the store. And I was so proud to be an American. But later on that evening, I remember that's the first time in my life where I didn't see myself as black. Or at least there was something that override or, or superseded being black. I wasn't a black American. I was an American who happened to be black. All right now. Mm. Mm. And I remember the feeling feeling so good with myself. And I remember looking at my graduate class and I asked them a simple question. And that question was, is this what it feels like for you every day? Mm, good. Man, that's so good. I want to pivot to something. And I hear this a lot. I've heard it on Facebook and social media recently. Uh, I, and I know it's a well-meaning statement. People say, when I see you, I don't see color. I just see human beings. I think you've heard from all four people here that it's okay to see them as black people, by the way. Uh, this is, and this is, I want to show you this. This is lifted right out of the scriptures. Let me tell you what heaven's going to be like. Revelation 7, verse 9 says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude, crowded, lots of people, that no one could count. Listen to this. From every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. I want you to know something about heaven. When we get to heaven, we're not all going to turn gray. 
When we go to heaven, there's going to be Malaysians in heaven. There's going to be black people in heaven. There's going to be brown people in heaven. Oftentimes, we ask, we ask black people to give up their distinctiveness, to give up their uniqueness. And while we are all equal, we're also very unique. And so I want to skip ahead to this question. I want to hear from each of you. What is it, what do you want your white brothers and sisters to know about black culture? What is, what is, what's, what do you treasure and cherish? What should we treasure and cherish about the black culture that you embody in your life? Tell us, tell us about that. Tell us who you are and tell us what we should respect about your culture. Well, for me, I want to say in many respects, if we get to know each other, we would find there's a lot more similarities between us than differences. Mm. Now, as far as black people, we tend to get a little loud. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> when we talk, we raise, uh, this is a famous book called Why Black People Tend to Shout. That's part of our culture. Yeah. <laughs> when we're in church, we tend to like to praise and worship and raise our hands and jump around and dance a little bit. <laughs> Some of you white folks who are Pentecostal, you know about that too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but really, if we just got the chance to know each other, we're more similar than we are different. Because what's the difference between soul food and southern food? No difference. Watermelon, fried chicken, <laughs> collard <laughs> greens, macaroni and cheese, <laughs> sweet potato pie. On, There's no difference except black people cook it. Cook it. And white people cook it. If you're white and you're cooking it, it's Southern cooking. Right. If you're black and you're cooking, exactly. it's soul food. So we're a lot more similar than we are different. Our differences, our, our, our differences are like spices. But when you get down to it, we're all the same. Amen. If we just get to know each other. Mm, so good. As we were singing that song earlier, um, in my father's house, there's a place for me. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Yeah. So when I come in this place and I sing that song, that is what I'm saying, that in my Father's house, there's a place for each one of us. Brown, red, yellow, whatever, black, white, that he has set a table for all of us to sit at and that we have a place together in his house. So that's what I want, to, want you to know about me, that when I come through those doors, I'm contending for the body of Christ. I'm contending for unity. I'm contending that we will get beyond our differences and see the things, how we are united, how we are one body. And so that is what I want you to know about me, is that I love you. Yes, thanks so, so good. We love you. I didn't know. Okay, first of all, I just found out she can sing and preach. <laughs> Amen. <right>. Wow. Amen. <laughs> um, what I would want people to know is pick, kind of piggybacking off of what Pastor Brady said, do not tell me you do not see color. When you tell me you do not see color, you're telling me that you don't see me. You don't see who I am. Right. I am my color. So don't be lazy. <laughs> don't cop out. Don't think that that is what black people want to hear. Like, oh, no, I don't see your color. Please 
do see yeah. my color. Yeah. Please yeah. do see it. Don't shy away from it. Inquire, ask questions, be compassionate, because this is what makes me who I am, okay? Um, but I do want you guys also to know that black people are not angry. Most. Most, that's true, that's true, because I, I can't, I can't speak for everybody. Um, but I don't think that in general, black people are angry. I think in general, black people have something to say and nobody wants to listen. And when we do speak, people want to counter it. People want to disregard it. People want to say, well, well, it's that way because, but I didn't ask you why it was that way. I told you that this is how I feel. And so we want to simply be heard. We don't want you to fix it. We don't want you to have an answer. Just listen with compassion. Mm, so good. That's so good, Tracy. So good. I <laughs> feel like I should drop the mic on. <laughs> um, I think the question is, what, what do I want my, my white brothers and sisters to know about black culture? And, um, and it's a simple truth. And we, we tend to, piggybacking on my wife, it, we tend to try to erase it. But you can't erase the history of a people and say, we just want to see people. And I like to say it like this often, is you can't dry off while you're in the pool. Um, you, can't, you can't fix a thing while a thing is still going on. And a thing will continue to go on when a thing is not acknowledged. Um, if there's a pain in my elbow and I don't acknowledge it, uh, after a while, that pain is going to say, okay, you're not listening to me, I'm going to get louder. And God has designed sometimes systems like pain in your elbow to let you know that there's an issue in your elbow. All right now. Um, I would just say what made Jesus so unique over, and I, I boldly say this, over all other religions, over all other, other religions, was he left where he was at to come down to where we were, mm. to take us back up to where he was at. Yes. Mm -hmm. And if you're not willing to, to go down, that's what oh, compassion right is, to hear someone voice and uh -huh. their pain, yeah. then you're not acknowledging the pain. Mm -hmm. And if you're not acknowledging the pain, you're, you're saying that the problem is not in your elbow, the problem is you. Mm. Yes. I think the best thing my, my white brothers and sisters can do is ask real questions. Mm. Not, oh, my heart bleeds for you. I, I, I appreciate that. But ask, man, when that happened, how did you feel? Mm. Because there's a, uh, my favorite sociologist said it this way. Not my favorite, one of my favorites. Uh, David Shipley, he had a book called A Country of Strangers. Book was like this thick in grad school. <laughs> it was like crazy, but anyway, the thing that stood out to me that he said in, his, in that book, he said, and this was a white guy, he said, blacks see race in everything, whites see race in nothing. 
And I'm saying to you, don't just see my race. See my history. Because when you see my history, you'll see me. Mm, so good. So good. I want, I, want to hear, I want to hear from each of you, as you look at the current climate that we're in America, riots, protests, um, our heart, all our hearts are breaking watching what's happening. And it's, it's easy right now to, to fall into despair and lose hope. But I know you guys are godly, spirit-led people. You have prophetic eyes. You're seeing the future. And, we're and we are looking through uh, the darkness of the night, but the, the morning's on its way. Can you give me, tell us what makes you hopeful about race relations in America and what makes you hopeful for race relations inside the church? What gives you hope? Well, first of all, what gives me hope is Jesus. Yeah. I mean, if it's not for him, I, I don't know where we would be. I believe that this is a Kairos moment for the church. I believe that this is a holy visitation, that we are being allowed at this time to see what is going on. Because most of us was at home. We wasn't busy. We weren't in our regular routine. And it's like the Lord highlighted what was really going on in the nation and also given the church an opportunity to lead the way. Because if we're looking for anything else outside of who God called us to be, we have already said no to God. And we have to say yes, that is the hope. When I saw my white brothers and sisters getting outraged, finally I felt over what we've been screaming, saying, this is going on, this is going on. And they were able to see it and begin to even peacefully protest and say, no longer, not on our watch. That is what gave me hope that God, I know God is in the midst of all of this, that he has his hands in this moment, and this is the time for the church. We're not going to do like we did 66 years ago and went back to sleep and turned our eyes. We cannot do that. And I, I just pray that we will continue to believe that God has called the church to be the answer and to lead the way he has called us to lead. Because we can't ask the world to do it. We can't ask the world to do something that we're not ready to do yet. And he's going to start with us. And I'm praying for our hearts to be ready. I want to move with him. Yeah, so good. So good. So good. <laughs> I just can't follow that. Um, my hope is in Christ. My hope is in Christ. Uh, that very scripture that Pastor uh, Brady, I know no matter what happens in this world, I know in the world to come, I will stand with all my brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. Praising the Lord, one God, every nation, tribe, and tongue, just saying, holy is the Lamb. And my only hope is really in the church, my wife, it's in the church. Um, my prayer is that we could be, that we could examine our hearts and examine ourselves and really heed the words of Christ. Who said to love your brother as yourself when he was told who is your brother, he chose the Samaritan. The most despised person probably other than the Romans to the Jews were Samaritans. The great commandment. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And love your, I, I think I just messed it up. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And he said, your neighbor is Samaritan. 
that we can all examine our hearts and say, God, where's there in me? That we can ask the Lord to illuminate our eyes and show us what's going on so that we could one day be like Paul who went on the road to Damascus when the Lord appeared to him. He had nothing more to say but, Lord, what do you want me to do? Mm, so good. So good. <clears throat> what gives me hope is um, sitting right here before me. It's what the people that are watching online right now can't see. That in this room, nobody got up and left. In this space, everybody that's sitting in these seats is looking up here, intent, leaning in, trying to hear what is being said. That's what gives me hope. Mm, so good. And I feel that if these kinds of conversations can happen in other churches across the country, but even for me, bigger than that, in living rooms across the country, in Facebook conversations across the country, in lunch rooms, in offices, if we hold accountable those who are within our circle of influence, that's what gives me hope. Mm. Like, I can, I can be outraged about something. You in this room can be outraged about something, and the person right next to you is outraged too. What are you going to do? Are you outraged when you see that it's your neighbor who is participating in this nonsense? Mm. It's when you take it out of this room and into your life and into your circle and you start challenging people, that's what gives me hope. Mm, so good, really good. I thought about that question a lot, but they already answered it, so I gotta come up with a different answer. Because uh, <laughs> Jesus is always the right answer. All right. <laughs> we, we teach that in Sunday school. Oh, no, not Sunday school. But anyway, so um, as they, they were talking, and I, I, I said and I thought about something that was, um, I, I left the military, and um, I was uh, considered an expert in my field. I was in the top 1% of every category. But when I left the military, I only left, I took one book. And there was a book called FM 22-100, Military Leadership. I didn't take any other book. And one of the things that that book said um, was leadership is a process of influencing others to accomplish a goal. So what gives me hope? I got through the whole thing without crying. No. <laughs> I love you. I love the four of you. Thank you for your courageous stories. I'm going to ask Andrew and Glenn and Daniel to come up. We're going to lay hands and pray over you today. And then we're going to ask you to pray over us. One of, the, one of the key things, when you find yourself at a place where you can't understand one another,
Maybe you're at a place where you can't even have a good conversation. The one thing we can all do is pray for one another and pray over one another and pray blessings over one another. And so what I want to do today is we're going to pray for them. Then I'm going to ask any of you, any of the four of you that want to pray over us, the church. And I want to confess before you that the church has not always hit the mark. And I want to say to you that we've not always gotten it right. In fact, most of the time we've gotten it wrong. And I'm going to say to you as your pastor that we are going to keep our eyes open, our hearts open, our minds open, and we're going to move forward together. We're better together. We're better together. And I'm grateful for that. So let's just pray over these brothers and sisters. Father in heaven, thank you for Ken and Tracy, for Sheldon, for Selena. Lord, we thank you for these godly couples who have shared very vulnerable stories today. They've opened up their hearts to us. And we, we say to them, we hear you. We see you. We hear you. We receive you. We love you. We choose today to walk alongside you, not in front of you, not behind you, but beside you. And we pray today for the peace of the Lord to rule over their homes and their hearts and their minds. We pray today that you would continually fill them with the Holy Spirit. That the peace of God would transcend all their understanding, that they would, you would guard their hearts and minds, that you would call forth peace over them, call forth blessings over them. We command your blessings over them. We pray for restoration and reparation. We pray today, Lord, that you would heal our land, that you would heal our souls, that you would knit our hearts together with our brothers and sisters, that we would hear their pain and understand their story and walk with them as we walk toward together redemption, Lord. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If any of you would like to just pray over us, would you just... Stand with me today, church. Stand up with me today, if you don't mind. And I want any of the four of you that want to just pray over our church. Just take, take the mic there and, and let's receive the prayers of our brothers and sisters. Let's agree with them in prayers. We pray together. Lord God, thank you so much. Very much for this day. And I want to echo what Ken said. Thank you for our leadership, Lord. Thank you for his desire. Thank you for him trying. He's maybe haven't gotten it right in the past, but the desire to want to do things the right way, Lord, to try to be the hands and feet of Christ. We thank you for that right now, Father God. Let's pray, Lord, you would just open all our eyes, Father God. As I said earlier, help us to really truly examine ourselves, see what's in our heart. Help us to truly welcome others into our lives that we might have those, those conversations, Lord, those difficult conversations. And give us all self-realization, Lord, that it's not... It's not about just social gospel or social. It's about Christ is about equity. Christ is about fairness. Christ is about love. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And just open our eyes, Lord, like I said, that we might be like Paul when you appeared in all your glory, this man who had been persecuting the church. And you said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And he had to go when the Lord showed him who he was, that he was attacking his people, that this Jesus he was going after was real, he said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Yes. May we all do that, say, yes. what do you want me to do? Amen. Amen. Go ahead. First Corinthians 1.10 says, let there be no divisions among you, that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. So my prayer 
is that we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him. So get this, the joy was before him. So my prayer and my praise to God right now is that there is a joy set before us. Oh, yes. That as Martin Luther King said, black and white, Jew and Gentile will come together as one. And it yes. will never be about the kingdom of darkness, but yes. it will always be about the kingdom of light. Yes. And if you yes. believe that, you should be putting your hands together and saying, thank you, Jesus. Yes. Because God inhabits the praises of his people. So, Father, I thank you for this opportunity to come out, to spend time with my brothers and sisters, to place a leadership that's so bold to say, we will stand for this no more. Father, I thank you that there are brothers and sisters in here that hopefully, hopefully, with a compassionate ear, heard something they did not hear. And Father, if and if they should want to continue this conversation, they do so knowing that they have brothers and sisters standing at their side that may look a little different from them, but we ultimately all have the same goal, to see Jesus glorified. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Essential Church Podcast. Our goal is always to strengthen and provoke the thinking of church and ministry leaders. And so if you found this or any episode helpful to you, please go to iTunes and leave us a review. Your reviews help leaders just like you find our podcast. And if you have any comments or suggestions on people or topics you'd like for us to cover, be sure to let us know via social media. And of course, please do share this and other episodes you find helpful around the web. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you.